0: Welcome to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. Some problems are easy to solve, some not so much. In the middle of World War II, a British soldier was given a problem that ultimately he did solve, but he had a heck of a time doing it. The problem was this, British guns were jamming out in the field. Why? No one in the British military had any idea. And it's important to note, the jamming happened to some soldiers and not others, and to some guns and not others. So the man tasked with solving this problem, his last name was Povey, set out on a long journey. He started, as you might expect, at the beginning, the factory where the bullets were being made, which was in Detroit. And he arrived in Detroit with some very precise measuring tools to do some very precise measurements. But the factory did not seem to be the problem. The bullets were exact in their measurements and they worked perfectly in the guns that the soldiers carried. So Povey kept following the bullets on their journey. They went by train from Detroit to the East Coast, and Povey took their measurements again in case the train ride had altered them. But it hadn't. Then they went by ship across the Atlantic. It was a stormy ride, and when Povey pulled out his super precise equipment, he realized that the rocking of the ship did slightly, so slightly he had to enlist his special tools, change the shape of some of the bullets. How? Well, the bullets were inside boxes, which were all stacked themselves into a bigger box, kind of like squares in a Rubik's Cube. And the bullets that were on the outside of the cube, the ones that banged into the wooden boxes, those few bullets got misshapen and jammed the soldiers' guns. Povey had solved the mystery. And he seems to have celebrated by doing some exploring in North Africa, at least for a while.
1: He got bored eventually, found himself in Timbuktu, Managed to bribe with a number of bottles of whiskey his way on a U.S. Air Force flight to Miami and got back to where he was temporarily based in Washington, D.C. to find that he had been declared missing, presumed dead.
0: That's Simon Winchester, author of a number of books, including Krakatoa and The Professor and The Madman.
1: And all his clothes had been given away to somebody else and his unit had been moved to
0: Baltimore. That story, told to him by Povey's son, inspired Winchester to write a book about precision. It's called The Perfectionists, How Precision Engineers Created the Modern World. In it, he tells the story of people who were profoundly influential, but most of us have never heard of. People like John Wilkinson, an 18th century industrialist who loved iron. He had an iron boat, an iron desk, and he wanted to be buried in an iron coffin. Something of a lunatic as well, I think. An amiable lunatic. But Wilkinson also changed the world. And he did it when he committed to filling an order in the spring of 1776 for a man named James Watt. Watt wanted iron cylinders for something he'd created, a steam engine. Once Watt had seen what
1: Wilkinson could do and make a cylinder which made the steam engine work perfectly and powerfully, He ordered 500 of them, a huge order, which made Wilkinson a very wealthy man. But it really kick-started the Industrial Revolution. So we know when the Industrial Revolution started, May the 4th, 1776, and that was also the birth of precision, which was the key to the revolution.
0: Precision, of course, defines our world, even if we barely give it a second thought. And it has defined Simon Winchester's world more than most, since his father was a precision engineer. He
1: made tiny electric motors for the Royal Navy, which were used in the guidance systems of torpedoes. And very occasionally, he'd take me to a factory and I'd see men working away, creating tiny little gear wheels, and it was all a bit bewildering
0: to me. Much of what Winchester's father did was secret because he worked with the military. But the author remembers beginning to understand the power of precision in a visceral way. One evening in the 1950s, when he was a kid, It was almost dinner time, and he and his mother were waiting for his father to come home.
1: And he came home with this beautiful wooden box with his name on a little brass plaque on the top of it, B.A.W.
0: Winchester, Esquire. Inside were all sorts of little metal objects, over a hundred, rods, squares, oblongs. And Winchester's father told his son he wanted to show him something. So he took two of the largest cubes, put them together to show they were clearly not magnetic, and then... He did the big reveal.
1: And he said, OK, so now you've seen this. I'm going to put one on top of the other. And he did. And he said, now pick up the top one. And I picked up the top one, but the bottom one came with it as well. And I thought, that's a bit odd because they're not magnetic. Mm -hmm. So I held the bottom one with my right hand, top one with my left hand, and tried to pull them apart. It proved impossible. No matter how hard I struggled, I could not separate these two blocks And my father took them and said, OK, that's what I wanted to show you because it's easy to separate them by sliding one off the other. It's a process called ringing, But it's impossible to pluck them from each other because they are so perfectly flat. There are no asperities in the surface that cause any air to leak in and make points of weakness. And the molecules actually bond together. So very briefly, the two pieces of metal actually become one. And this notion of extraordinary flatness, which is a key to precision engineering, an absolutely fundamental aspect of it, has remained with me ever since, Mm. thanks to my father.
0: That's amazing. So before we dive into some stories, some more stories about uh, precision engineering, we've both kind of alluded to this, but like, talk about how precision is all around us, Um, even if we don't pay any attention to it. And it's just not something that registers with us or matters. But just explain like in a normal person's life, who's not an engineer, where precision factors in.
1: It seems to be a word commonly used every day in advertising To suggest something of of high value, of Mm -hmm. impeccable standard. I mean, we buy motor car tyres that are precision engineered. We buy a wristwatch, you know, precision gear wheels inside it. We buy binoculars, precision glassware. Mm -hmm. So the, the connotation is precision is a thoroughly good thing. And... Ubiquitous. Almost everything we buy. I mean, no one would buy anything that's, uh, you know, said to be imprecise right. or inaccurate.
0: <laughs> it's not like your best advertising slogan. This is good, but kind of imprecise.
1: I think if you'll indulge me for a second, just to explain the difference between precision and accuracy. Sure. Um, important once again, rather like flatness. Important concept. Concept. Accuracy. If you can imagine a dartboard and you're firing darts or arrows or bullets at it, your intention is to hit the bull in the center. And if you do that, in other words, if you achieve your intention, you've achieved high accuracy. If you fire your bullets or your arrows or whatever at the dartboard and they all hit, let's say 10 o'clock, in other words, not necessarily the bull, but every single shot of yours hits exactly the same place time after time after time after time, that you have achieved is great precision. It's doing the same thing endlessly, repetitiously. Mm-hmm. And the concept that bleeds out of that is the making of interchangeable parts, making components where everyone is exactly the same. Mm. So that's precision. If you can achieve precision and accuracy, that's absolutely top-notch. But accuracy and precision, at least to an engineer, are subtly different.
0: And that point about being able to do things over and over again is very much related to the wilkinson story and that like as you say it's all about interchangeability interchangeable parts so in our world today if a remote control doesn't work and we put in a different AA battery or you know if you've got a fancy razor and it breaks and, and you replace the part we assume of course it's going to work That's like the whole point of interchangeable parts but as you say that was not always the case and in some sense the notion that, like, every single battery door on a given type of phone is exactly the same, that's kind of mind-blowing, even if we don't necessarily think about it.
1: It sort of is. And really the birth of that in this country, anyway, was, was all down to Henry Ford mm. um, and the manufacturer of cars. And I devote a lot of time in the middle of the book to talking about two motor cars that were effectively uh, had more or less the same lifespan, the Rolls-Royce Silver Ghost which was born in 1908 and effectively okay. had its run until about 1927, and in Michigan, same period, the Ford Model T. And the difference between the work of these two Henrys, Henry Royce, who made the Rolls-Royce, and Henry Ford, who made the Ford Model T, is that precision, you may think the Rolls-Royce Silver Ghost was the sort of acme of precision, but it wasn't, because if a, they were all handmade, and if a piece didn't mm. fit... The man who was making it would simply take a file and chamfer the piece down until it did fit. But on the production lines in Michigan, all the component parts were interchangeable. So whether it was a carburetor or whether it was a transmission or whether it was a gear shift, they'd all be on the upper floor of the the factory waiting to come down in hoppers to the assembly line. All the parts perfectly, precisely made and theoretically interchangeable. And if one part wasn't, if one part was out of true, then suddenly it would cause the production line to stop. It would jam it and there'd have to be a massive investigation as to what part was wrong. And it'd have to be replaced. All the workers would stand around smoking cigarettes and everything would cost a great deal of money. So the imperative to have interchangeable parts was much more important for inexpensive mass production than it was for handmade apparently perfect machines like Rolls Royces. So once Henry Ford had solved this problem and had made interchangeable parts and made the making of them so key to everything, then the rest of the American manufacturing system
0: followed suit and everyone does it today, as you say,
1: whether it's a washing machine or an iPhone.
0: You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with journalist Simon Winchester. He's the author of the new book, The Perfectionists, How Precision Engineering Created the Modern World. When you look at the history of precision, do you think that people in the 18th century and the 19th century understood or thought that, like, we have to have more precision to advance technology to, like, you know, for the world to progress? Or did, like, everything just happen like little dominoes, but people didn't really see the big picture?
1: That's a very interesting question. And I'm not going to say that I've never considered it, but I've never been able fully to answer it. Clearly, when James Watt placed the order with John Wilkinson for 500 identical cylinders, he knew he was on to something. But I think it's early days, no one said what we need is precision. I think they it came about organically, and then there was a sort of an aha moment. Mm-hmm. And it occurred in that critical period from about 1780 to 1810. Those 30 years saw the true birth of this phenomenon,
0: right, and during that time frame, of course, you've got the French Revolution, and you identify the French Revolution as related to the advance of precision in this way. So you've got all these refugees from France, right? They're trying to get out of this dangerous political climate. Uh, many end up in England, and many people in England say. We don't like all these refugees. We do not feel safe. Um, and because of that, the demand for precision locks, they skyrocketed. Uh, you want to talk about what happened?
1: I always think that's one of the most extraordinary stories, the social effects at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Prior to 17, let's say 1776, most of the wealthy people in, let's say, England lived in the countryside, and mm-hmm. they felt secure in their mansions and castles and granges and manor houses and so forth. Right. Then... Industrial Revolution happened. People built factories, cities, Manchester, Liverpool, Birmingham, London, grew up. And people that made their fortunes out of these factories lived near them in cities. And in London particularly, wealthy nouveau riche people were living cheek by jowl with these agitated French post-revolutionary type people and, um, and a lot of impoverished people. And the consequence of that is that the newly rich people felt insecure and so they built themselves sturdy houses with solid front doors, and, as you mentioned, very, very complicated and th- allegedly unbreakable locks. Mm-hmm. And the key man in this story is a fellow called Joseph Brahma, who was an inventor two de force. I mean, he invented the first flush toilet. Mm. He invented a machine for counting banknotes. He invented the first fountain pen, but also covering his bets made a machine for manufacturing quills in large numbers. So he did all of these things, but he was fascinated with the idea of locks. And he employed this chap, Maudsley, the one who I'm most interested in because he came up with the concept of flatness, to do the machining of these beautiful, impeccably made Also cylindrical, because remember that uh, John Wilkinson's first invention was a cylinder for James Watt. Mm -hmm. And so proud was Mr Brahma of his most complex lock that he put one in the front window. There's a big bay window of his um, workshop at 124 Piccadilly, the west end of Piccadilly. And with a little notice saying, anyone that can break this lock without smashing it to bits, of course, I will pay 200 guineas, which was a great deal of money in those days. Well, that was in 1790. The years went by. People applied to break it. No one could. And it wasn't until 1851, so that's now 61 years later, that it was on show, still unpicked at the Great Exhibition in Crystal Palace in Hyde Park. And there it was with spotlit next to it, 200 golden guinea coins waiting for someone. And an American turned up. And he was called Charles Hall. And so he set to work with tiny little instruments and magnifying glasses and little beams of light, little projecting things. And after 50 hours of painstaking work, there was this satisfying click and the lock opened.
0: If we step back, um, do you think, if you look at the world since 1960, and I picked that because of the work that was done on space during the 60s in terms of going to the moon, do you think that the last, like, 60 or so years has changed the game in terms of precision? Or is it just kind of a logical follow-on to what happened before that?
1: I think the game is changing as we sit here today. And it started, you're quite right, in about 1960. You have to look at two fields, mechanical precision and electronic precision. Mm -hmm. In mechanical precision, we're starting, I think, anyway, and this is maybe a heresy to most engineers, to see the limits. We're reaching a moment of inability to make things, and I'm talking about physical objects like pieces of metal, to such incredibly tiny tolerances and Our lives, in many senses, are at stake. And a classic example was the near disaster that enveloped a a Qantas A380, a double-decker Airbus, uh, flying from Singapore to um, Sydney in 2010. That was nearly brought down. One of the engines exploded because a tiny tube, about a steel tube, titanium tube actually, about the diameter of a drinking straw had been mismachined by a fraction of a millimetre by an engineer at a factory in northern England. And it broke and it caused the engine to go on fire and to explode. Hmm. Well, one wonders whether we're reaching the limits of our ability to machine pieces of metal now, whether we've reached a physical limit of mechanical precision. And similarly, in the electronic world, I mean, your average iPhone, I'm holding my iPhone 8, which incidentally is off, Um, (laughs) it has a chip in it about the size of my little finger, my pinky, as Americans call it, fingernail. An A11 chip made for Apple in Taiwan has in it 4.3 billion, not million, but billion transistors. And this is a device, Mm. the transistor that was made first in 1948 or 47, about the size of your fist. So they've become so small. There are so many transistors. This isn't the statistic which I find so astonishing. There are more transistors in the world today than there are leaves on all the trees in all the world today. And yet they're operating at such tiny tolerances. They're down at atomic levels but one is beginning to say, "Wait a minute! Are we perhaps reaching limits? We know we're reaching them in mechanical precision; perhaps in electronic precision as well."
0: Is that a bad thing in your mind that, in mechanical or electrical precision, that we're that? What if we are nearing the end? Does that mean there's going to be a slowdown, like what in the in the economy and progress?
1: No, I think it's a point at which we pause, and this is really the the central point of of the book, at least towards its end, which sort of guided me for most of its writing. Are we fetishizing precision? Is there, once again, it sounds a heretical thing to say, are we demanding too much precision? Are we worshipping it? Do we revere it? And at the same time, ignoring and forgetting craftsmanship, the imprecise, Mm -hmm. the beauty Mm -hmm. of things like wood and ceramics and lacquerware and so forth, In Japan and Korea, most notably, they give awards. The government gives awards and pensions to people that have devoted their life to making by hand things which are beautiful and imprecise, as we human beings are, as nature is. There are no straight lines in nature. And so I'm wondering whether the possibility that we're reaching limits, physical and electronic, and that there is this movement to say, wait a minute, are we perhaps worshipping titanium more than we should and forgetting the delights of bamboo may
0: cause us to pause. And that, in my view, is no bad thing. Simon Winchester is the author of the new book, The Perfectionists, how precision engineers created the modern world. Simon, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Winchester told me he's sad about an event that's likely to take place in 2019, the abandoning of the physical standard for the kilogram. Why? Scientists were worried it was always slightly imprecise. In the future, the weight's gonna be a formula tied to something in physics called Planck's constant. The physical platinum kilogram is safely housed in Sevres, France, at least until it retires.